Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. All right. Welcome back. I'm here with Aaron. Aaron is a producer who works in Hollywood. Aaron's been producing, developing projects, you name it, short films, features, music videos, series, and so forth. And for this podcast, we're going to just refer to him as Aaron. Um, and this is Aaron turned out, meaning Aaron is alive, thriving, uh, grounded, centered, and he went through some stuff in the childhood and dealing with ADHD, stimulant, medication, and so forth. So we're going to talk about that today. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure. Um, you and I have known each other for a couple of years, and um, I think it's important to say that today you are allowing me to go into, uh, I should say, the depth of, of your childhood and perhaps some traumatic events, things that left the mark. So I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, I'm also happy to say that I'm at a place in my life where I don't experience shame or, you know, the reluctance to share my story. And I think that's been a big um, positive. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you've done a lot of work on yourself, uh, digging, healing, transforming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Would you say that's why you can say that and say, I have no problem going deep? Yeah, no, I think that is a big thing. I mean, I think everybody's journey is different. Everybody's journey in self-development and, and therapy and everything is different. And it's certainly a lifelong experience. Uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had to work on myself. That's great. for And obviously for our parents listening, I always say it's a good frame of mind to listen to our guest as if this was your child in the future. Because our kids are going to go through stuff, right? I mean, we both can attest to that. There are things coming at you. Right. But just got to be ready. And especially if we do self-development work, we can be stronger in overcoming it. Absolutely. So let's go back there. Yay. Um, yeah. You were born in? I was born on the East Coast in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what year? 1981. <gasps> 81. Wow. Yeah. I was Beginning of the millennials. I was starting to grow out my hair because I was born in 70. Um, <laughs> so um, take us back there. So um, the environment that you were born into as a little kid, obviously as a baby, you don't know, you're just there. But what did you observe uh, growing up? What kind of environment, what kind of family environment was it? Yeah, um, both of my parents are, you know, you're pretty average, you know, white American family. Um, we were very poor um, for the first 15 years of my life until I was about 14 or 15. Um, my father actually, to his credit, worked his way up uh, in his company. And he now actually is a partner in the same company that he's been at for, you know, 20, 25 years. Wow. Way to go, dad. Consistent. Yeah. So he's sort of like that, that middle class American dream, you know, when, when I was a kid, uh, there was definitely a period of, a uh, periods of time that I didn't experience per se, like not having food in the house, but it was definitely like a scarcity situation. You know, there was a lot, 
it was like the cheapest food you could buy. We didn't go out to eat. Um, and uh, I, I don't think it really, like I don't think I understood it until I was a little bit older, like until I was a teenager, that it was like, oh, I never had money when you, know, you get to go to the museum, right. school trips or whatever. Like I never had spending money. And how did you feel about that? Um, w- w- did you ever, looking back, were you ever, did you ever feel like you needed to help out or you needed to be the one to save the family or you needed, you know, or was there any kind of internal dialogue that you remember um, in regards to the, the poverty or the, the stress yeah. in the family? Um, I, I think it's important to note that both of my parents worked for the majority of my life full time. And so I spent a lot of time by myself, even from a really young age, you know, like getting off the bus in elementary school, you know, let's say the bus drops you off at two thirty, mm-hmm. and then your parents don't get home until five or five thirty. Is that what they call a latchkey kid? I think, yeah, that's a thing. And apparently, uh, my understanding is that a lot of my generation, a lot of people who grew up in the 80s were kind of latchkey kids. I would not say that that was particularly like a problem for me personally because I was so independent. But, you know, a lot of people have particular traumas surrounding that and like these issues of like abandonment. Whereas like for me, I can I can say for the most part that I was a, a fairly happy child in the sense that because we lived next to a forest and because I was kind of left to my own devices, I was just sort mm-hmm. of like this creative kid that was always like running around and riding bikes and just playing by myself. But I did a lot of playing by myself. Yeah. Um, and just kind no, of no siblings. I have a younger sister. We're actually eight years apart. So if okay. you want to take in consideration that by the time I was eight, which very much feels like that kind of only child syndrome, and being treated like an only child. And then sort of suddenly my sister who was, shall we say, loved, but not expected. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's a title of an episode. Like, yeah. Became oh, like the, episode. yeah, she became like the baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the focus of course was shifting to her. Um, and you felt that? Yes. Well, there, there's some other context too that we should talk about in terms of my childhood as a whole, which is that um, aside from what I've already stated, it was um, inadvertently a very abusive household. So, so I was going to go back there, yeah. but yeah, if you want to uh, throw that in now, um, I was going to say, at what point did you feel like something, you were different or you, they started to kind of point out that maybe you needed something, whether it's counseling or meds or just simply being labeled with something? Um, I would say, I would say the wanting to label me happened in middle school. So um, 12, 12, 13. Yeah. And what I should back up and, 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 and talk about in terms of leading up to that experience is, um, now, Granted, I know this now, but this is the environment that I was in for, especially those, like the period of time from probably when I started school um, until I was about 12. My parents essentially were in the space of a divorce, but they didn't get divorced because they were too poor to. And this is something that I know now because my mother has shared it with me. And this is when you were how old? I was, it was basically the time period from five to 
10. Okay. And during that time period, my sister was also born, which of course is an additional stressor and all that stuff. Um, and I would, I would also say to that note, in hindsight, when it comes to my sister, there is a, a degree of relief for me emotionally because attention shifted to her. And I'm sure, mm. I mean, I can say I experienced, you know, moments of jealousy and stuff like that. But in reality, as I moved into my teenage years, the, the shift of focus on like the baby allowed me to be left alone. And given that, you know, my parents uh, fought a lot, uh, the more they didn't pay attention to me, the older I got, the better off I sort of was. Um, hmm. And to speak into the sort of, or to paint a picture of what the environment looked like, um, essentially there was just a lot of emotional abuse um, a lot of between the parents, um, towards each other. Yes. And then by extension onto me. So I would say by the, the older I got, the more it became, uh, apparent that I would never be good enough. There was a lot of conversation about like undercutting any achievement. So like putting you down or, uh, mm -hmm. belittling you mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Like what, what are some of the words? What would be some of the statements that you I mean, Remember. I, uh, you know, everything from, I, I think one of my friend's favorite stories is I was at a, um, an honors music conference because I am an, you know, an artistic person. So <laughs> I, I was a singer and, and I was at a conference and I, you know, performed this extra, like this college level piece. And at the end of it, the first thing that my mother said to me was, oh, I think you were flat on this note. Mm. It, it was stuff like that. And it's, if you can imagine living in an environment where every single statement out of your mother's mouth is negative, yeah, you know, and I can say now that this is all of her own unresolved trauma, you know, things that she was not dealing with, you know, um, I think to, if you want to put mental health words on it, um, it, there's definitely narcissism and and uh, the the term borderline personality disorder has been used to describe my mother before. Mm -hmm. So that to kind of paint the picture of that's what it was like living in my mother's house. And then simultaneously, my father was the most passive, unemotional man you could ever imagine. Yeah. Um, he was extremely loving with my sister. With me, it was very in the doing. Like if we were building something together, it was fine, but there was no connection. There wasn't a lot of conversation between us. He yeah. did not establish any sense that men were allowed to be emotional. Like it was that very, like my mother would be like screaming in his face and they would basically be like yelling at each other back and forth. And he would be taking all this like abuse from her. And it was sort of like this taught behavior for me. It pretty much described my parents simil yeah. similar, um, minus the perhaps uh, personality disorder or, you know, but but my my dad was the same way. Very sweet, loving, uh, but didn't have conversations about anything. Just did stuff and goofed around, and it was nice. Yeah. But yeah, interesting. And yeah. so 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 it's interesting because your um, your 
parents were basically going through a uh, um, are they still together today? They are. They're still wow. married. Yeah. So they just went through that period where it's almost seems like they should have gotten a divorce or they could have. Well, apparently my mother actually wanted to. And when they looked at the math, it was actually financially impossible for them to not just pay for the divorce, but to actually pay to live separately. Mm. And that's basically what that time they, period. And yeah. according to my mother, there was a year right when I was seven when my father didn't speak to her for basically a, almost 10 months. Mm. Um, but so, they were living together and sleeping in the same room and, mm. you know, whatever. So that must have been, yeah, that must have been really something you felt or the kids feel, right? Because you're in the space. There's tension. Yeah. It's like eggshells. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, I, honestly, that's been my experience my whole life with my mother. Um, there was definitely... There were maybe like a handful of moments where I could tell in my life where she was actually like genuinely happy. And in those moments, there was this, this sense of opening and this like ability to have fun with her yeah. like for the first time. But other than those moments, I mean, it was always like walking on eggshells. There was anything would set her off. You never knew why. Um, it, it was like walking in a minefield. That's interesting because what, what, what just came to mind is like a lot of kids are misdiagnosed, uh, you know, with ADHD, but really they have some form of PTSD. Right. Right. And if you think of PTSD as a traditional veteran comes home from war, uh, but you can compare that with what you just said. If you feel like you're living in a, like your house is a minefield emotionally, you have the same stress and the same like you know, fear breathing down your neck. That can't be good for kids. I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but yeah, sounds like that. No, tri that's triggered exactly. Something. Yeah. And I, to your point, that's how I would describe my entire childhood. Most of my relationship into my adult life with my mother was like that. Um, and did you, when did you start noticing that at school that, that that would preoccupy you and that you couldn't focus on things or, or did you, um, I would imagine it would have showed up at school. Well, I think the the resilience in me was that I was a fairly happy-go-lucky individual, and I was very creative. I, um, you know, I had a high sense of um, intelligence in the sense of like I understood things, you know, complex things. I understood. Um, artistic stuff, story, and, and things like that really easily. Uh, and anything that was easy for me was really easy for me, and I was very high-functioning in that way. Mm. And at the same time, um, I had a lot... I was just a very energetic kid. I had a lot of energy. And that, coupled with this sort of, like, backdrop in my head of, you know, walking in a minefield um, only got worse and worse as I headed into my teenage years into middle school and high school. And is that when it sort of stuck out as maybe there's something to label here? Well, I, I think in terms of my experience in elementary school, I think it was relatively, I think I ended up having a relatively normal experience in school as a whole. I mean, I know like in fourth grade, I had an older teacher that didn't really get me because I'll admit I'm like an, an, uh, a weird, 
I was a weird kid. Like, again, <laughs> I was creative and I yeah. had thoughts that other people didn't have. And I wasn't into normal stuff. You know, I, I loved, you know, dragons and um, cartoons that, you know, were like in other worlds. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's kind of, you know, just where I always lived. And also, um, I should note that I was a full year younger than every other person in my grade. Mm-hmm. I actually went to elementary school. I started elementary school at the age of five oh, and wow. nearly every other person in my class was six. And then, you know, they'd probably turn seven over the course of the year. Right. Whereas I would turn six going into the year. Um, they also say, by the way, that that's one of the uh, factors of ADHD often shows up in the kids that are the younger ones going into a classroom. Oh yeah. I didn't know There's that. so much pressure and there's just, it's harder, right? Cause they're a year younger. Well, and not just that, I mean, I think, you know, emotionally, not that I was even given any kind of emotional skills to really even handle, you know, real emotions in my life. But, uh, I think I, emotionally, I was a full year younger than a lot of people and I wasn't, and again, I wasn't given any tools to really deal with that. So I think that's a lot also of, you know, just kind of, um, kind of building that, like going into the middle school situation and then, there's one more thing that we get to talk about that happened before middle school that is important, which is that um, around the age of seven or eight, I started getting groomed by someone and then was eventually um, sexually abused multiple times. And this is somebody that you, not family? No. Uh, it was an older person who lived in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and um, he was I think five or six years older than me. I actually don't remember, but it was one of the situations where the neighborhood really only had like three children in it as a whole. And so the choices often were play with him or play by myself. And there was there was that period where, you know, like eventually you would get bored and and so when you when you when you build in you know how grooming works which is to say like you know there were a lot of good times that we had you know we mm-hmm. had a lot of fun you know so you were middle we, school and he was close I was to elementary 20, school and he was twenty uh, one late middle school early high school mm. when it started got it and it stopped when we moved away but by that point I'd been abused multiple times. Um, physically, um, and sexually, um, by this person. Yes. By this person. Yeah. Uh, and then we moved right before I went to sixth grade or into middle school. And did your parents know anything? Um, that's kind of also sort of a dark story, which is that, uh, there was a particular instance. Um, I don't know if it's relevant to talk about the actual event itself, Whatever you feel like, you know, this is not a TMI, meaning uh, it's not about the right. details per se, but whatever you feel like sharing. Yeah. I mean, um, I was also bullied by this person. And again, I can't stress enough that it was also like one of the only friends that I had. So there was a, of the handful of times that I was abused by this person, there were hundreds of other instances where we just hung out you were friends yeah rode bikes and played and built forts and did stuff that guys do 
Um, but there was an instance where I was being bullied and um, by him and then uh, eventually stripped. And um, I was trying to make my way back to the house. Uh, my stripped house. Stripped as in like clothes? As in like my clothes were taken oh, wow. from me. Yeah. So, you so were I was to... literally walking through the woods. It was winter. And um, I, was, I was trying to make my way back to my house. And one of the neighbors spotted me. And I would say, I think it was a few days later. But anyway, like a Friday night, we were out at a restaurant. And my mother said that the neighbor had seen me. Mm. She like brought this up to me at a restaurant. And I told her, I'm not sure how I phrased it specifically, but I told her that something had happened between the two of us and that it was like, that I wasn't allowed to tell her about it, but that something like, I specifically notated like the person that was abusing me in the statement. So they knew. Yeah, so I very specifically was like, he did something to me essentially. And the response that I received uh, was my mother essentially laughing in my face um, and sort of telling me that I had made it up. Mm. And I think that was kind of like, I mean, this had to have been later in the process. So um, A, I was abused again after that happened that night. And... Um, again, it didn't stop until we physically moved away, but we never talked about it again and I never brought it up to my parents. So Mm. for all of your parents that are listening, I think (laughs) one of the most important things that you can do is actually listen and not only to your child, but also your gut. If there's something that feels like there's a deep something that's going wrong, you, you need to find a way to create the space that your child can actually tell you. And I would imagine, I mean, as a parent now myself, that anything that would ever come up of any abuse, any physical, even verbal, psychological, sexual, especially if my son mentioned anything, I would drop everything and just say, I'm listening. Keep, you know, tell me what's the experience, right? Of course, we've done a lot of work and we're in a, you know, 2020, uh, and a lot of our parents had were had abused themselves and were forced to not talk about it. And perhaps there was a fear in your mom's mind that if that gets talked about and get, gets revealed, she may have to reveal her own, right? There's, we don't know. No, I mean, I know that she grew up in also an emotionally abusive household. So if you, you know, on, in a subtle level, if you want to talk about cycle of abuse, that is a real thing. And I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Um, like I'm a walking example of cycle of abuse. Um, if you want to talk about my particular abuser in this case, he was adopted. He was abandoned by his original family. Um, he was physically abused by his adoptive parents. Yeah. Um, so it is something that is like a poison that infects people over and over again. And it keeps giving to the next generation, essentially. Yeah, it's that saying, right? Hurt people hurt people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we... I think the the society that I grew up in, which is that, you know, men were really not allowed to be emotional or really talk about their feelings, which is exactly what my father taught me. Um, and literally everything, you know, 
in society in the 80s, essentially. Yep. And into the 90s. Um, when, you know, you're not allowed to talk about anything, you're dealing with, like, the PTSD of it all. You're, like, living in the trauma of it, essentially, over and over again. Yeah. And as a male, you know, you're just supposed to, quote, suck it up. Yeah. And... Um, be strong. Yeah. Be strong. Don't talk about it. You know, you you end up carrying these emotional weights yeah. around with you and and there's this sense that you're waiting for the next person to abuse you essentially um and yeah it's it's amazing we i had a guest on marilyn wedge she's a family therapist and she's a bit more extreme in her point of view and I, but i can start to see where she's getting it from and she says that most children that are labeled with a mental disorder have been abused and it doesn't have to be sexual, but she's saying there's a high percentage of sexual abuse like in that group, right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because when you look around and you ask people, oh, why is your son, you know, what's going on? It's like, well, he has this disorder. It's like, well, how come? Right. Oh, well, he just has it. Yeah, we don't, we don't go any no, deeper. Yeah. There is never an exploration of that. And, and I guess that like segues into now I'm in middle school and they're noticing that you know, I have trouble focusing. They're noticing that I can't sit for eight hours a day at the age of 11 and just... Which, by the way, uh, I'm an adult and I can't sit for more than two hours. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? Uh, But kids should. And again, you know, my... Not only is my mind, you know, living this minefield, but, you know, as as a creative person, as someone who's different, as someone who sees the world differently... You know, there's a lot of dreaming that I do on a, you know, to this day and that I knew I did even more as a child. And so sitting, doing, you know, busy work in school was not really conducive to learning. On on the other side or on the other uh, side of that in terms of schoolwork, anything that was like experience based, anytime we went to a museum Anytime we did like exercises outside the classroom or an experiment in right. science class, that stuff, I was good every time. Me too. I yeah. basically have um, photographic memory, which is like I can literally see something once and the image sticks in my head. So it's not really great for absorbing <laughs> writing on a page, but it's really great for anything that is remotely visual. for me and I pick up stuff like that so quickly or if I am doing something for a job it's it's an instantaneous um understanding for me and it's something that I remember you know eternally afterwards and then when did you at school when did that become an issue right so when did when did the powers to be say there's something wrong here versus just the occasional not paying attention yeah, um, I can't put a specific moment. Like, I can't say something happened and this is why. But um, I think as we, um, as we, or as I, you know, was experiencing, you know, middle school in, by the way, a new town with completely new set of friends, um, you know, friends in quotation marks, like, you know, well, new people, yeah, new you had to people, get to know, yeah. yeah, new people I'd get to know. I was the new kid, et cetera, et cetera, and trying to um, figure out that social minefield. Yeah, another minefield. Damn. Yeah. Um, no, I think somewhere along sixth grade, they were like, 
oh, he's not doing as well as other kids or whatever. And um, I, I would say like one of my distinct memories of sixth grade is when we, when I got to middle school, I, I thought, where's the playground? Because my favorite <laughs> thing in, um, in elementary school was, was recess and field days. And I just loved like being outside and running around and like coming up with stories and play acting with friends. So yeah, yeah. Um, that's sort of like, again, as a sixth in sixth grade being like a year younger than everybody else, I was still in like, when do we get to go to recess? <laughs> but it, it blows my mind because if you look at the, where that came from, right? The industrial revolution, like have desks and the person up front so you can go to the factory and you can yeah. be a good factory worker. And yet kids are all about play and sports and outdoors and like talking and, and communicating and running and, you know, but then no, we're sit down be quiet, learn, you right. know, it's not easy to, especially with what you were dealing with on top of that. It's like, holy shit, how are you supposed to learn bullshit like algebra? Yeah. <laughs> it's not important. I mean, what I'll say, you know, if you want to think about it in, in, in the context of my life, I was, I was being forced to sit in a classroom for basically eight hours a day, maybe minus gym. Um, and then I probably had two hours in the afternoon where I was alone at home after I got off the bus. And then the minefield of my parents, you know, came into the house and would go through that whole thing again. And, and so if you want to talk about homework, trying to do homework in an environment like that, really, really difficult. I did never really had the like parents that sat you down and like helped you do your homework. It wasn't like that. Um, it was really like, you have to figure it out by yourself. And also you're going to do it while like you hear them screaming in the other room. Yeah. Um, so, you know, any chance that I could escape and, you know, go play in the woods or, or just literally go for a walk anywhere, um, was I was gone because I just wanted to feel free and feel like I could be myself and, you know, not live in this bubble that was, it felt very conforming and it felt very much like I was being, you know, um, forced into that, that sort of like cog in the wheel sort of mentality of like, this is what normal looks like. You know, this is how kids behave. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to be good at. Um, and, and simultaneously I'll say that the things that started to appeal to me in middle school were things like drama and music. And I was in band, uh, ran cross country a little bit, anything that was, um, artistic, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So something that was a little bit, not just, you know, Mm -hmm. normal academia. And during that school, was there ever a mention of you should get tested or you have a mental disorder or did you still make it through kind of okay? Um, I know that by seventh grade, I honestly don't remember if it started in sixth or seventh grade. I think there was a period of time where they tried um, some form of amphetamine on me. And How would they introduce it? Just like, hey, you may want to try this and you'll... No, no, it wasn't. As far as I remember, and I, this is just my personal experience, but I don't remember ever having a conversation about it with my parents. I don't remember them ever really talking to me about it. I just know that suddenly I had to go to like the office at a certain time of day and take a pill. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it was about. At school. 
at school. So wait, so at school, uh, someone came and got you every day to go to the office, to the nurse, mm-hmm. and take a pill. Yep. But you didn't know why. No. And there was also, during this period of time, my mother started bringing me to like a family psychologist. And which I'm, I mean, obviously that's how they got the prescription right? Um, for the drugs. But I also don't remember ever understanding why we were going to this guy over and over again. Because your parents never really talked about it, right? There's no mention of... Uh... It, it didn't feel like it. No. I mean, you know, um, from a place of personal responsibility, you know, there were impulsive things that I did. Again, going back to the um, being emotionally like younger, you know, there were, I did stupid things, you know, I made impulsive decisions. I made, I, you know, made stupid decisions. Oh, that's just wrong. Aaron. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> terrible. You know, um, how, and, how and human of you. It, yeah. And I mean, you know, some of it was, was crossing the line. I mean, I'm like specifically, uh, I think I was like, my father was playing some kind of intramural basketball or something um at the school and a friend of mine and I like went in the school like through an open window because we were like playing detective and basically we were got caught trespassing and so then I got to do community service for that nice but that's like an example of just like um the for me, what was just like a mindset of like, I was just playing, I wasn't doing anything malicious. I wasn't stealing anything, right. but it's like something that was like, you know, obviously it's still trespassing. So it feels wrong. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think we've all done something like that. Maybe some of us haven't. I mean, I did silly stuff and I know Kai, our, our son did some stuff like that. We crawled underneath the stalls of the bathroom, locked them and crawled back out, right? So yeah. it's, it's kind of a prank. Oh, right? I did stupid stuff like that yeah. all the time. Yeah, I mean, in in elementary school, I'd run around trying to kiss girls. And <laughs> I mean, just just silly um, stuff that was, was considered to be not behaving. Um, but I have never been a malicious person. I have never knowingly done anything that felt illegal or was trying to wrong someone. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never knowingly bullied someone. Um, yeah, Yeah, but I've had moments of, you know, childhood idiocy and I will totally own that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always say, uh, I know it's a noble idea, but we, we use our, um, impulsivity to, um, calibrate our intuition, right? So you try something out that didn't work. Okay. Next time. Right. So you got to do it. You got to kind of fail to, to learn you. We can't just protect kids from never, ever doing anything silly or fail, or that would be ridiculous. They would grow up uh, robots. It's yeah. a great point, and and to that point, I will say that anything I ever got in trouble for, or, you know, was sort of like a life lesson. To your point, I would always learn from that experience. You know, again, like the experience learning, and it would never be something that occurred to me to do again. Yeah, yeah. So it it was like I was just sort of like testing out life, so to speak. Yeah. And you know, again, like made some mistakes, but I learned from those mistakes for the most part moving forward. And the amphetamines that you were now taking during middle school, right? Mm-hmm. 
did they help? Did According to my teachers, they helped me focus in class. Um, and how did you feel? Do you have any memories of feeling better or more jacked up or tired or not tired? Or uh, Most of my memories with amphetamines because I... F- and we're talking I about probably it, Ritalin, I would imagine, or something. It was probably Ritalin. I know that um, high school, which I guess we'll get to in a moment, um, was when we moved into Dexedrine mm. or Adderall. Yeah. Um, but in middle school, it was like one year of Ritalin. And um, to be honest, I never experienced a real difference in terms of my experience in class. So it didn't, it didn't necessarily uh, make you feel any better or worse? No, just, not in middle school. I mean, I, I honestly felt sort of like everything I've already described was still going on whether I was on this drug or not. Yeah. So um, all of the you're doing better shit was my teacher saying that to my parents and it was conversations they were having. My personal experience in middle school was not that much different. Like mm-hmm. the the um, environment of abuse, the trouble fitting in, all of that stuff was the same for Obviously me. that didn't go anywhere, yeah. No, it, it made no difference. And, you yeah. know, socially, when you're the kid who thinks differently, you're always going to be like the weird kid. And I actually think, if I were to give myself credit, I think I did exceptionally well considering the mountain that I was up against in terms of the social scene, which is like, I was weird. I didn't go to elementary school with these middle school kids. Um, I liked music and band and I wasn't that into sports. I mean, there was, there was just a lot of stuff that was just inherently different about me. And I still managed to have like some degree of like friends. Mm hmm. And, um, did, did they know that you were taking meds for a mental disorder, uh, ADHD, or you know whatever was said? No, because no. I wasn't really that aware of it, at mm. least for the year, like in seventh grade, yeah. that I was. Um, and then in eighth grade, uh, we we didn't do the meds at all, and um, and that went okay. I mean, I graduated, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, again, my experience was not particularly different between the two. Mm -hmm. And did you feel like the teachers and the parents were happier because now you were paying more attention? And so in other words, they were satisfied with what was happening, even though you didn't really feel better or worse. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it felt like I was on this drug for them, not for me. And... I would say as a, you know, to my 12-year-old self that I didn't understand what I was supposed to get out of it. And I wasn't getting anything out of it. But they were getting like a compliant middle school kid yeah, who I guess was more focused in class. And then the grades were okay so you could move on to the next school environment, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so then later um, that became Adderall. This is high school. Yeah, so now we're going to talk about high school. So high school was exceptionally difficult. Um, the the sort of like um, the niceties, the the more coddled 
like middle school, which was my experience of it, which is like they, they kind of make kids more get along or whatever. I mm-hmm. mean, by the time you get to high school, you know, again, taking into consideration everything I've already talked about in terms of my mental state, add in that um, I'm also realizing that uh, my sexuality is different from all the other kids. So that started probably in seventh or eighth grade, but by the time I was in ninth grade and really in high school, um, I understood that I was attracted to men and women. Mm. And this is 19, you know, early to mid nineties. And the word bisexual is nowhere to be found. Mm. I didn't understand what that meant. And I was walking around with this secret on top of the abuse, on top of the home experience, on top of the fact that I had trouble relating to certain kids because I just thought differently than they did. And it was a year younger than everybody. And um, the meds and the mental disorder. Right. Well, and again, the just... meds were inconsistent. So um, what, what, I, what I wanted to say about that is my freshman year, I was not on medication for the most part. And um, I, was, I was dealing with all these trauma um, and, and also trying to understand my sexuality I was getting, uh, I started to get passive aggressively bullied, which is the best way I can put it, which is not physically pushed into lockers, but constantly that sort of like underlying people talking about you behind your back yeah. all the time. Making fun of you or. Yeah. I mean, by the time I was a senior, there were rumors about me being gay. Um, you know, some, someone lied about sleeping with me and it was a guy. And so then everybody thought like I was in this gay relationship with this person who unfortunately um, had his own uh, mental experience and, and ended up leaving school because of it. Hmm. But um, that was that was like the school environment. And then again, I was going home to the, the other trauma, That's which was my parents. A lot and, to handle, yeah. Yeah, and, and if you want to think about like my average day because my one outlet was that I found the arts and, and like really lived in it. So I, I was really heavy into the um, chorus and um, I did, let me think, uh, eight musicals in the four years of high school plus three straight plays. I did an opera outside of school. Wow. Um, all while I was, you know, attending high school like a normal kid. So I would I would go to school from like seven in the morning until three, and then be at play practice until midnight. Wow! Um, so that was a bit of your salvation, like the create creative environment ended up being your yeah safe and, safe haven in a way, right? Yeah, and I think that's the most important word that you could ever say. It's not um, what I think I hear a lot of people say about what they think ADD is, which is like, if you're interested in something, you have no problem focusing on it. What it was for me is when I was in chorus, even when we were doing college level music that was incredibly intense, um, required a lot of mental focus for long periods of time. uh, I felt safe in that space because I'm very fortunate that I had um, a drama teacher, a dance teacher and a chorus teacher who loved me for who I was and really treated me not only, you know, as like 
their family in a sense, but also there was a level where they, they treated me like a professional out in the world, mm. you know, in, in these things. And right. their like love for me was made me feel okay. Like it made me feel like that was the only space mm. that I could be myself and I didn't have to worry about it. And, and, and for the record, there were still people that I did musicals and plays with that were bullying me or, or you know, sure. making jokes about my sexuality or that I was weird or whatever it was. And um, so that was still going on. And, and yet in that space, I, I still felt more myself mm-hmm. than saying other things. And, and in terms of the academic stuff, uh, you know, I was naturally good at math. Um, English was hard for me only because I had not found, um, like I would later in life, I'd not found uh, reading like to be exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and so I, I just, I, I don't want to say I wasn't interested. I just, I was a slow reader because I hadn't, I wasn't doing it a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, again, by the time I was 20 and I discovered a very specific collection of books called fiction, and I started <laughs> reading fiction, all of a sudden my reading speed was astronomically faster. Yeah, you And I up. loved it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in high school, it was like, oh, I got to sit down and read something right now? I mean, again, I'm, I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm like trying to get through the day without having a nervous breakdown. Um, well, you said something interesting that the drama teacher or that environment allowed you to be yourself and I talk about this a lot with parents like you know when I say oh so you want to love your kids great what does that look like well you know I love them and I'm like okay but what is that what are you doing or who are you being and most parents have a hard time they'll say well you know I spend time with my child and we go get ice cream and you know I I wish him the best for the future and I I give him everything And, and and still the question is what does it look like though how how can you measure that? And I think the easiest way to, to measure it is when a child feels accepted, like they can be who they are and yeah. they get supported and their visions or dreams are not called crazy, but like, wow, that's great. And, oh, you want to be an actor? Great. Let's take acting classes, right? It takes a lot, but that's the only love we can give. And that's acceptance. That's allowing a safe space, you know, to, to just be yourself. Yeah. And, and that's, that's I, what you got there. I think you, you nailed it because my choral teacher and my dance teacher, they held me accountable to my actions. So, you know, I had to act like a professional human, but I never felt like I couldn't be myself. Like in some version of my mind, I could actually open up about my abuse Hmm. with these two people. I didn't feel like there was nothing about myself, like my core person, you know, me as a human being that they would not accept or love. And that is not what I was getting at home. In fact, I felt the opposite. The more I started exploring myself and really trying to live as who I really was. The more my mother was resistant to it, she was very critical of all everything. I mean, not just the academic side, but also she latched on to the arts part of me and used that as an opportunity to kind of tear me down through critiquing as well. Mm. And so um, it just, it, it made it worse and worse. And by that point I was so independent kind of as a, as a, 
person in the way that I wanted to kind of be that I was, I just wanted to be away from my parents as much as possible. Of course. And so the more I got kind of forced to be around them, the bigger our fights got. Right. And, and, you know, um, and there were times when, you know, there was physical abuse too. I mean, my mother would smack me in the face because she just couldn't handle this, this, um, th- there was just so much anger that was like building inside of me from, you know, all the kids at school that were bullying me from my not understanding who I, like what was going on with my sexuality to not feeling like I could be myself without people tearing me down for it to the, the PTSD of like, I don't know, her, you know, household and the actual sexual abuse I had suffered. And, and again, all of this is going on simultaneously Wow. while I'm trying to attend high school and, you know, um, in high school for, you know, eight hours a day minimum. And then if you add the play on top of it, you're adding at least three, four hours. Wow, busy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because both the school and the family environment for you were two rigid boxes that you didn't fit in or didn't feel safe, right? And so where do you go? Well, the theater community allows you to make your own box or has a more fluid, organically, right, box that you fit into. You feel good. And then... A lot of kids, if they don't have that, right, maybe the gang becomes that or the, the crazy yeah. uh, friend who does all sorts of illegal stuff and you get in trouble with. So I'm glad you found creativity because... No, I am you know. too. Um, and to that point, I did have a friend who found drugs instead. And that was, um, it was devastating. And I lost that friend because of that. Mm. Um, you mean I'm, as in like he died? He eventually committed suicide by the mm. time he was 20. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, uh, Gabor Mate would agree, like even with uh, drug abuse, there's, there's trauma. They're not just druggies. Yeah. There's trauma in the house. There's trauma in the, you know, upbringing everywhere. And to your point about the two boxes, like even, even the theater box, there were people in the theater box that were very judgmental and, you know, felt like the cool kids that were like unaccepting of me. But I kind of didn't care in that setting because I felt more like myself. So it was kind of like, yeah, I'm here. Fuck it. You know? Yeah. Um, and there's always going to be other humans who need to yeah. be better or that they matter more than you do. And that's, of course, you know, but yeah. at least like you said, you were able to be grounded and have that confidence instead of, you know, at home, there was none of that. Right. Correct. And, you know, I, I mean, my circle friends became this very diverse collection of people who were like sort of outsiders like me. And the majority of, of my school was, was rich white kids to Mm. be just blunt about it. Yeah. There was a lot of upper middle-class white kids. And, um, there was that clash as well because I just wasn't that. Right. You You didn't identify with that stamp. Um, Hmm. so to talk about the, the medication. Okay. So that's, that's what like high school was just like. Um, and you were on Adderall. Did you now notice something different? Was it cause Adderall is a bit like speed. I've tried yeah. it, you know? I mean, it's, it's pretty intense. I was also in Dexedrine, which apparently made me so angry hmm. that my mother couldn't handle it. And she made them change my medication. And, and to be clear, it wasn't like I was always on these things. It, there were like these periods of time where they would like try me on it and then they would not try me on it. Mm. And what I remember is, um, because now I feel like I was more conscious to it, was uh, I was really good at busy work, 
but it felt like every part of my personality was repressed. Hmm. That's, that's what it felt like to be on Adderall. That's what it felt like to be on Dextreme. It felt like I was really good at writing like perfect handwritten notes in class, mm-hmm. but I wasn't absorbing the material any more than I already was. And at the same time, my creativity was fully stifled. I also felt emotionally that I was being stifled. Like I didn't feel like I could express myself. It mm. felt like I was being forced into a box chemically, which as you can imagine, as somebody who'd basically been like raging against that in my entire life, it, it, it kind of further, I don't want to say it further traumatized me, but it definitely contributed to the anger that I was experiencing that didn't have, I mean, I just didn't have a place to mm-hmm. let go of that anger. I wa- And again, I wasn't taught to let go of my emotions. I was taught to swallow it. So I'm walking around as this raging ball of anger about all of these things that have happened to me that were happening around me um, and and just constantly swallowing it. And, and as a result of that, there were, there were a couple of moments in high school where I would have like horrendous, basically tantrums you know I got in a fight with a kid once um that was a friend of mine and you know that I to this day like could not tell you what that fight was about but I was just so on edge all the time yeah I was just about to explode at any moment and it's interesting because a lot of kids that are diagnosed with ADHD and they go on medication after a while they say oh it's a comorbidity they also have ODD which is oppositional defiance disorder because of the angers coming out and stuff. And so a lot of these kids get labeled with two disorders and they're on two meds. Right. And frankly, what's never addressed is the first 45 minutes of our conversation is what's the, what's the home like? Is it a minefield? Is there trauma? Can you be yourself? Do you feel safe? That never gets addressed in most parts. I mean, I would say uh, hopefully 30, 40% of the parents are starting to look at it, but the, for the rest, it's just a disorder. Right. Well, and if you if you want a perfect example of that for me is standardized testing. Yeah. So on medication, I did the PSATs and I scored, you know, above average. Off medication, I took the SAT and scored above average. I think it was slightly lower than mm-hmm. what the PA, the PSAT equivalent is. But that kind of just shows you that it really wasn't about the knowledge. It was about just kind of like the way that that work happens, essentially. Again, the sort of like busy work or the like, this sort of like compliant, yeah. you know, sitting in a room for five hours doing math and English problems over and over again. Yeah, I always say that uh, if you have good grades, it doesn't mean you're smart. It means you're good at memorizing. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't very book smart, but I had extraordinary street smarts. I would say despite my own uh, emotional, um, how emotionally stifled I was, I was actually fairly emotionally intelligent with people, especially my, my, cir- my close circle of friends, who really were my saviors in many ways. Because again, another reflection of people who accepted me for who I was, and I felt like I could tell them, maybe not everything, but more of myself. I felt like I could share myself with them. Yeah. And um, so again, that's that's kind of what it that's kind of what the medication did. And furthermore, to your point, um, 
<clears throat> I don't know if other I, I don't know if other people experience this on amphetamines, but I became very OCD. So it's like when you feel like you're spiraling out of control and somebody's trying to like chemically keep you sort of like in this this line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> kind of becomes almost dealing, an obsession. Yeah, not dealing with the emotional. I became extremely OCD in the sense that like everything had to be like very segmented and like perfectly positioned and like my bedroom became this like weird shrine where I was like surrounding myself with stuff but it was like placed and like nobody could touch it and it's like my bed always had to be made I started sleeping on top of my made bed just stuff like that because (laughs) it was like it was like a I need to control something in my life because everything feels like it's going to explode. Is, okay. I was going to say, is it a result also of, um, you know, with the meds, you were basically uh, uh, organizing well, paying attention, focusing, getting good grades, and you feel like if that suddenly stops, you're less of a good student or less of a good right. person. So No, you gotta... it's, good person is the word I would use because mm. it wasn't just about the student. It felt like, um, and again, I was still going to that same psychologist who, by the way, um, in the, this is a, another conversation, but in the nineties, a lot of psychologists told bisexual people that it was a phase because they were trying to spare them pain. It's a weird thing that just was like in this, in the psychology community, like that was apparently a thing in the nineties, which I didn't know until two years ago. But my experience was that I like sort of volunteered this information to me when I was in a session with the psychiatrist and he said, essentially like, it's a f- like you're in a phase right now and, and eventually you'll decide whether you like girls or boys. And the truth is, no, I wasn't going to because I, I do like people of all genders. So, mm-hmm. um, but that was just like kind of like yet another example of, of like this person who was also medicating me kind of telling me that I wasn't allowed to be myself. Mm-hmm. And that became the battle. You know, it's the the medicated version of me, which was very like what everybody wanted me to be versus who I actually was. And it was that constant battle the entire time. Yeah, it's like an identity crisis, right? Yeah. And it and because, you know, you're a child and it's it's who you are. I mean, it feels like somebody's telling you not to be you, mm-hmm. who you are inherently as a human. Yeah. And um that's I mean, that's just, that's how I, you know, got through the, I mean, that's what those four years were like. Wow. It, and this is high school. Yeah. And then after high school, did you discontinue Adderall? Correct. Because now you graduated and the parents were fine. At least you graduated high right. school. What was next? I went to college. Um, I was given scholarships for the, re- for the record for mm. music. Nice. Um, I was accepted to multiple colleges. Um, I auditioned for multiple college, some of which were very big names and, um, was accepted. Oh, congratulations. So again, despite Mm -hmm. this minefield of my life, I was still very capable of, you know, achieving Ivy league status, uh, not on the academic side, obviously, but in terms of the arts side of it, I mean, 
And do you yeah. now looking back and it's not quite a fair question, but uh, I'd like to ask it anyway, looking back now, do you think you would have still graduated that way and gotten scholarships if you hadn't been on uh, Adderall during high school? Yes. You still would have, because you mentioned the SAT and, and PSAT. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, again, I wasn't consistently on medication for any of those four years. No. It was, it was very like, it was like a couple months, maybe my sophomore year, like, we tried it again like a couple months in my junior year. Um, and again, during those periods of time, all that really happened is I became more OCD. I became more frightened to be myself. And it wasn't, it was only helping me do the busy work, which what's important to talk about is when I finally went to college, I, college was very easy for me as a whole. I still struggled with some of the like identity stuff and, you know, with my peers and stuff like that. But in an environment where you go to class for less than an hour and you're surrounded by other intellectual people That's and great. then you have like a break or you go do whatever you want to do right. when you have a little bit more freedom to be yourself. When for me, because I was in a dorm and I wasn't living with my parents, I was not going home to... A battlefield. Which dorm were you in? Girls or boys? I'm kidding. <laughs> in both. It was actually... And was in the middle. <laughs> yeah, it was actually uh, boys and girls dorm. Ooh. Yeah. Paradise. Yeah. For you. Yeah, for me. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so college was just significantly easier. And, it, you know, it wasn't amazing, but in terms of, like, work, um, you know, and and maybe most people don't know this, but being a music major in college, you get one credit hour for essentially like three to eight hours of work for a class. Mm. So you might have 15 credits like a normal person, but really you have like 24. So that's the level of achievement. Like that's the level of work that I was always capable of doing. That's the level wow. of work I was doing in high school, you know? Um, and again, I just can't stress enough that even without medication, like the difference was is college was just not as rigorously structured. There's not standardized testing in college, really. You know, you go to college, you write more papers, you you write more from the heart, you're you're being it's more critical, at least when I was there. It's more critical thinking, it's yeah. more problem solving. Um, there's a lot less busy work. And um, you know, the stuff that that wasn't as um, applicable or like the stuff that wasn't reachable in high school, like real intellectual conversations, like having like those arguments in yeah. sociology class that are like open dialogues with your other classmates was, was so great for me. Um, and I really felt like I could finally let my intellect kind of lead me mm -hmm. in my schooling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember that too from college going back when I was older. It was nice to have these cool, creative, explorative conversations around life and art and, you know, but that's not, that's not happening in uh, elementary school or middle school. And it could. Kids are very attuned with everything, yes. you know. I've had my little one on the podcast before when he was like six years old and we're talking about the universe. And he's sharp. He's questioning things, you know. We don't do that too much. I mean, some, no. some private schools, but. And, and what, what that kind of brings up for me also is just what we don't 
teach in schools, which is emotional intelligence. So you don't teach... I mean, not only did I grow up in a household where I was taught that men don't feel, but it's not like you go to school and they teach you that your feelings are valid. Right. You know, you have no outlet, basically, and I certainly didn't. And you don't know how to start a relationship, maintain one, nope. finish one peacefully. You have no idea how to communicate with your peers. You don't right. understand that your anger is not towards the person that's standing in front of you in that yep. moment. Yep. Um, and, and to some degree, I think that music, especially in high school, because there was this sense that you were supposed to be emotional, which was, was I, I can't thank my chorus teacher enough, but she, you know, uh, just made the, the experience of every, every piece that we were working on. There was this sense that you were allowed to be emotional, that like music was emotional. So in a way, I think even as little as I was able to release some emotional stuff, that that's, that's where I started to understand yeah. that. Hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, it's almost like talking about ADHD, but not really, because again, I believe ADHD is not real. The struggle is real. The label is made up. Therefore, it could be real if we choose to put it on ourselves, or it could be denounced and listen like, nope, thanks, I'm good. Uh, today, you don't consider yourself ADD or ADHD or having a mental disorder. You're still bi, uh, right? right? <laughs> You're still creative. Yep. Um, you're still alive and I think you're thriving in your own way. Yeah. I mean, here's, here's why I, you can label stuff, whatever you want it to be. You know, I think if it, if a label helps you, that's great. Um, for me, you know, I want people to know that I can sit in a room as a producer and look at a budget for 14 hours a day. I can, you know, be on a set standing on my feet for 16 hours a day, managing people with different personalities. You know, I can do contracts <laughs> for hours at a time. Um, and I do not experience any kind of lack of focus. Um, and I would say the more, especially in the last couple of years that I've done um, self-development work, the more the emotional intelligence has given me you know, the, there's, I'm not in the back of my head thinking about mm. other stuff. I'm not in the back of my head, like holding on to emotional stuff that I haven't processed yet. Yeah. That's, that's like the magic pill, honestly. So would you say, um, cause I love using these words because they're usually contested in the ADHD communities. What I'm hearing is that if you had, have had ADHD, if that was the truth, you technically could say today I've outgrown it. Yeah. I mean, I think if you want to label me as ADD or ADHD in the setting of a public school, you know, during that time period, you know, from middle school and high school, then sure. I had a lot of energy. I had a lot of, you know, stuff emotionally I was going through and it did contribute to my ability to do what is like standard work. Yeah. In, in that setting. Well, it's refreshing because I think lots of parents, um, you know, are worried if their children aren't medicated at an early age that they will not turn out. They will always be hyperactive and attentive and, uh, you know, just like, you know, 
like impulsive and they will just not find a rhythm. They will not carve out a path. They will not have a job, a career, a marriage. You know, it, that's the fear of the parents. But what I'm hearing is from your, in your case, I mean, you turned out. Yeah. I mean, I, I would like to think I'm an, a, a, a exceptionally high functioning person more than probably the average person. I am very capable of doing much higher quantities of work in a shorter period of time than most people. I'm highly creative. I'm a great problem solver. I can work with almost any personality. Um, and I have celebrities included. And um, that was all possible to me or possible. Yeah, that was all a possibility for me, regardless of whether or not I was medicated. And I don't know. I mean, what I really want to say to parents is your kid is going to go through life whether you try to, you know, control it or not. And sometimes it feels, at least my experience, is it feels that they want to medicate their children because they want some sense of control over yeah, them. protection. And in reality, I learned more not in those circumstances. So, you know, like you always say, like in terms of being a human being, you learn more outside of the classroom than when you're, you know, yeah. copying stuff out of a book. And um, that's the stuff that regardless of whether I was medicated or not, is stuff that I still learned. Yeah. From the experience of being a child. Yeah, we can't trauma proof our children um, because no. it's going to happen, right? It will. But we can prepare them on emotional intelligence on how to recognize perhaps trauma and how to process it, how to heal it, and how to grow from it. Yes. And, you know, to that point, I mean, I've obviously shared a lot of trauma and I've, I've experienced a lot even more trauma than we've even shared here, but... What I'll say about that is I am perfectly capable of handling that level of trauma. Yeah. And what I wish that I had tools wise was not medication during those time periods. What I wish I had was the ability to feel what I was going through. What I wish I had is somebody who I actually felt like got me, who mm. I felt like was creating space for me that I could actually open up and say, this horrible thing happened to me. And I, I need to let go of the sadness and the anger, et cetera. That would have been a huge game changer for me. And whose role would that have been? You know, I think that that is up to the individual, you know, I, you know, in my, I can't change who my parents are. You know, I love them for who they are. I accept that their own traumas you know, dictated their actions. So I don't blame them necessarily for what I experienced. Um, but that kind of was part of their job description in a way. Yeah. I mean, look, my experience is my experience. I have certainly learned a lot from it. Yeah. Um, so for me, it probably would not have been my parents. You know, I think in, in a lot of ways, some of my teachers, and like I said, my chorus teacher or my dance yeah. teacher yeah. were more of those people for me. But I wish that there was a stronger sense like I wish counselors actually felt like people that weren't going to talk to your parents about whatever you talk to them about I wished that maybe if I really understood why I was going to the psychologist maybe I would have understood you know that I could have used him for my own 
stuff that I was going through as mm-hmm. opposed to him being sort of a facilitator for what my mother was trying to get out of me. Yeah. Um, I think if you can, I think if you are a parent and you have the ability to create that space for your child, that's amazing. I mean, I, I think that's the most incredible gift you could possibly give your child is just to let them know that they're allowed to be whoever they are and you give them the tools to actually feel whatever they're feeling. Because on the other side of that is the opportunity to be focused and productive and as intelligent as they actually are and to find who they are. And um, I think the safe space is really what every child deserves to have in this world. It's what I can honestly say I did not really have. And it would have changed the trajectory of my life if I had had that space. I think that I did have moments of that space, but not consistently. Yeah, I think this is a good place to wrap up this episode. Uh, For the parents listening, uh, safe space, I think, is worth way more than gifts, vacations, ice cream, and so forth. Those are nice. But it's when our children can feel safe and when they know that what we're experiencing or what they're experiencing is accepted as their reality and not just like sort of written off and like, yeah, yeah, that's not true or yeah, whatever, or that's not, you know, real. Or So uh, yeah, well, thanks, Aaron, for sharing your story with people, with us, with me. I uh, appreciate your vulnerability and, and authenticity and just uh, all the the stories of your childhood because I know it's going to make a difference for someone out there. So thank you. 